Hey, have you ever been on the receiving end of an unexpected, uh, undeserved, really cool gift? Ever had a moment like that before? Maybe a surprise piece of mail or... Uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe it was some maybe it was some money. All right, you found some money uh, in your car. All right, that you had forgotten about. Maybe uh, in a drawer at home in the kitchen. Maybe uh, some money that you found. Maybe maybe with it being cold this week. Uh, maybe you pulled out that coat for the first time and you dug your hands into the pocket of it and you came across a twenty. Right? It's always fun to find a twenty, an unexpected twenty somewhere, or uh, could have been a, a, an award or a recognition. Maybe uh, maybe for you. Maybe your spouse, uh, maybe your kids, maybe a, a friend. Again, something that you weren't expecting, maybe something you'd say that was undeserved, but something someone else saw in you. I remember uh, one time Jenny and I were living in Louisville, and uh, we had two young children at the time, and uh, we didn't have a lot of extra cash. And one day, we got a letter in the mail from a great aunt. This is a true story. A great aunt that I had never met before. And uh, this was a great aunt that introduced herself, sort of reintroduced herself to me. And uh, she told me about how proud I was, she was that I was a pastor, and part of that comes out of the fact that I had a great-grandfather uh, that was a pastor. He was a traveling evangelist, actually, for over 50 years uh, around Indiana and Illinois, and so that was her dad, and so the letter was, you know, just kind of saying, hey, you know, I'm proud of you. Your great-grandpa would be very proud of you, and then in there, she put a check for $1,000, all right? Again, just an unexpected, undeserved gift, and so we were ecstatic, as anyone would be. I think, uh, to receive a gift like that. I don't know if anything like that has ever happened to you this morning. Well, today, uh, we're going to look at a story of someone who is on the receiving end of an undeserved uh, sort of a gift. And I want to check this out with you. If you've got your Bibles with you today, uh, I'd invite you to take it and turn to Luke chapter 7. It's the third book in the New Testament. Uh, If you use an electronic device for your Bible, feel free to go there with us. If you want to use one of the Bibles around the room uh, on the floor, you can pick that up and turn to page 721. I think it's great for us to have a Bible on our laps, uh, whether a paper kind or an electronic kind, really just to follow along, but we'll have these verses for you uh, on the screen too. I was reading uh, this past week about how one day the Christian apologist uh, C.S. Lewis was walking into a room where a a number of people, a group of men, were debating the question, what makes Christianity unique among all religions? And uh, this question was then immediately posed to Lewis, who respond really without even pausing, saying, uh, that's easy, it's grace. Grace is what makes Christianity unique among all other religions in this world. And he went on to explain how, uh, how, how uh, no other religion teaches the concept of a, of a God who takes the initiative uh, to respond with undeserved favor to sinners. See, every other religion in this world is founded on this principle that you must do something to please God, all right, that, that you must do something to earn favor uh, with Him. And so we work our way towards God, and that's what makes Christianity so different. And if you're brand new with us this morning, if you're new to all of this, um, I pray that you would hear these words, that Christianity is so different in this. With Christianity, the good news is that God made the move. 
All right, the good news is that God himself paid the debt, that, that Christianity isn't about what we can do for ourselves. It's, uh, it's not about what we can do to, to please God, but instead about what he has done. Uh, that he made the first move, and with his son, as we're going to discover today, uh, to deal with sin and how he makes it possible in that for people like you and me to experience forgiveness and to experience his grace, and so that we can have a personal relationship with him. And so we call it grace. All right, grace is kind of a key word for us this morning. Grace is what makes our faith so great. And what is it? I I, I like this definition. I heard uh, Tony Evans say it like this. He says, grace is the inexhaustible, All right, emphasis on that word. Grace is the inexhaustible supply of God's goodness, whereby he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so grace indeed is what he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, and therefore it's a free gift that he makes available to you and me. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul had a shady past, all right? He had a story of his own until he encountered Christ Uh, as we're going to see in someone else today. But he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and and this not from yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Underline those words in your Bible if you can. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so it's, it's not about, Christianity isn't about what you can achieve for yourself. But instead it's all about what God has achieved for us, In Jesus Christ, it is a free gift made available, available to all people. Uh, It's available to anyone here today, any one of you, Uh, no matter your story, no matter your past, no matter what others might say about you. uh, It's a free gift that is available to all people. What we're going to find today, though, is that there is a response on our part that is so necessary to how all of this works, and I want to show you what that means today. But just to kind of catch you up real quick, if you're new, we've been in this series uh, all fall, really, uh, studying the life of Jesus. Some might ask, why in the world are we doing such a long series through Jesus? We think he's worth it, right? I mean, we're putting all of our life in him, all right? And so I think we need to make every effort we can to know him as best as we can, and so we come back to him all the time. And so we've been in this series called In the Flesh. I think, you know, for most of us, we're at least somewhat familiar as G, uh, of Jesus as the Son of God, uh, as you know, the divine God uh, of all things. Uh, we want to look at him in the flesh too because he spent days uh, and years here on the earth as the Son of God, all right? But we want to see him in his humanity. And so we've just been kind of tracing his steps uh, in the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. These are different accounts of the same person from different perspectives. And so we've just been following his steps from Bethlehem and his time in Jerusalem his baptism up in Nazareth where he grew up. Where we are now is everything to do with the Sea of Galilee to the very far north, all right? And Jesus spent a significant amount of time preaching and teaching, all right, in this area. He set up a headquarters of sorts in what the Jews referred to as Kefir Nahum, which is the Hebrew word for what we know as Capernaum, all right? And so I like to say that Capernaum caps off the top of the Sea of Galilee. So again, this is ground zero for Jesus, not only Jesus, but also his disciples. And so his disciples are going with him while Jesus was certainly interested in spreading the news and sharing with others and preaching and teaching, we know that he was very intentional about investing in his disciples. Jesus knew he was going to ascend to heaven and leave the work 
to the disciples. So he's going to take advantage of this time with him. And so they're going with him from town to town, place to place. Where we want to pick up in Luke 7 today, we're not sure the disciples are here. Okay, they don't get mentioned. I think there's a really good chance they were. All right, but again, we don't know for sure. And so with all of these events and accounts that we've been looking at, we've got to ask ourselves, what's Jesus teaching the disciples? All right, and even with the Sermon on the Mount last week, what is Jesus teaching his disciples? And maybe the same is true for today as well. So we want to look at this encounter, Luke 7, starting in verse 36. There are multiple people involved, three we know for sure. Jesus certainly, Simon the Pharisee, and a woman who is only known for the mess that she has made of her life. All right, that's her reputation. That's what she's known for. All right, and in this passage, the silly arrogance of the Pharisee is going to be laid side by side with the humility of a sinful woman. It's a perfect collision, really, of both sin and grace, and Jesus himself is in the middle. And so we're also always asking ourselves, how is Jesus responding, and what does that mean for me? All right, how should I live my life? Even for the disciples, how is Jesus responding? What does that mean for me? Verse 36, Luke records the event. He says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, Jesus did, and reclined at the table. Now, one of the things that made Jesus so different than all of the other teachers and rabbis in the day is that he was willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now, these were the outcasts of society, all right? A faithful Jew would go to great lengths to avoid anyone from this camp at all costs. Not the case with Jesus. Now, let's also take note that Jesus was willing to dine with a self-righteous Pharisee. Now, if it were me, I'd say, what's the point in that? Why even waste your time? But that's what makes Jesus so special. Not only is he concerned about the spiritually lost, he's concerned about the religious lost too. And Simon, Simon's willingness to invite Jesus into his home at least speaks of the respect that he has for Jesus as a rabbi. All right, it doesn't mean that he agrees with all that Jesus is saying, but at least he's intrigued by him. Notice one little detail that Luke includes here when he says that Jesus reclined at the table. You ever tell your kids not to lean back in their chair, all right? That's not what is happening here. But instead, all right, let me, let me just kind of demonstrate what would happen in an ancient meal like this. It wasn't uncommon for them to lay out a mat in the center of the room or maybe a small table, like a small pallet where, where the food would be served. And then what these men would do was they would get down on the ground and they would recline at the table. Hi, Terry. How you doing? And uh, if it makes any of you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. But they would, they would lean on their side, their feet away from the table, kind of leaning on one elbow. Uh, interestingly enough, and we'll talk about this again in a couple of weeks, but the Passover meal likely served in the same way. We often see the painting of all the men sitting at one table, one long table together. Not true, all right? Not in this period of time. They would lay down on the floor. Again, we'll talk about this in a few weeks when we get to the uh, Passover meal. But this was a customary position. You would lie down, elbow up, feet extended away from the table. Uh, Any guests that would enter a home would have their feet washed first because they were in sandals. It's very dirty. But again, they would recline with their feet extended behind them. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, again, that's what she's known for, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, we don't know for sure, but many people believe, theologians agree, that this woman was likely a prostitute. 
All right, so she sold her body for a living. We don't know why she chose this as her trade. Again, did she choose it? Would anyone, you know, with the right mind ever choose such an occupation? Probably not. Maybe her husband divorced her, threw her out on the streets. In a culture like this, she had nowhere else to turn. All I think is there's got to be a story. And we don't know the details and the hardship of her life. One day in heaven we'll learn, all right? But she's got a story. Somehow she learns that Jesus was dining at this home. Now, back in the day, meals like these were not private affairs. If a teachers like this gathered together, all right, religious leaders, if they gathered for a meal like this one, they would typically leave the door open to their home. The public was invited to come in and they could observe as long as they stood to the sidelines and didn't say anything. And so that's what this woman is doing. All right, now I still think it's a gutsy move on her part, especially if this is her reputation because her presence defiled the meal, all right? And again, not so much because she was there, but because of some of the actions that she's going to take, as we'll see in just a second. And notice one more thing in this passage. Notice that she brought an alabaster jar of perfume with her. I've included a picture here just to show you what alabaster looks like and maybe the receptacle that she was carrying. Jars like these, uh, people tended to carry around a very expensive perfume in them, a perfume that prostitutes were known to carry with them as a part of their work. All right, some suggest that it could have contained a substance uh, known as nard that was used uh, to anoint the the dead. Uh, We don't know for sure. No matter what was inside, it was likely very valuable and potentially everything that she had. Verse 38, as she stood behind him, all right, and now you can kind of get a picture of this as you imagine Jesus' posture. At his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, did she come intending to anoint the feet of Jesus with this perfume, or was she on her way to work and just happened to bump into everything that was happening? Again, we don't know, but what we can wonder is whether she had already encountered God's message of forgiveness for all people. Like some have suggested that it's possible that she had been one of those in the crowd that had followed John the Baptist and listened to John the Baptist teach about forgiveness and repentance. Or maybe she was in the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount as Ben talked about last week. Maybe she heard about Jesus' message of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are beat up. Again, we don't know for sure, but whatever is happening here, it really is an action that's communicating, I'm done with my old ways. I'm not going to be needing this perfume anymore. And, And again, no matter what it is, just please know how she turns to Jesus. That's where she goes. And so she's crying and she's crying at his feet, and she's wiping her feet, his feet with her tears and her hair. She's taking the position of a, of a servant, really. Uh, it's an expression of deep regret and, and humility over her own sin. She wanted something that no one else could offer, no one that is except for Jesus. And so that's why she's here, and that's why she went to him. And if we put it all together, I just think this posture of crying, this final sacrifice, the act of worship, It really is a picture that this woman is expressing godly sorrow over the sin in her life. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Bible has a very clear uh, differentiation between what it calls worldly sorrow and what it refers to as godly sorrow. Now, most of us 
all right? And even if you're new to all of this, and even if you're not sure about what you think about God or Jesus or whatever, most of us, I think, right-minded, good people experience some level of sorrow over our mistakes. Like if you do something and you hurt someone that you love or you do something that costs you something, we experience some level over sorrow. Well, the Bible challenges us as followers of Jesus to consider the difference between our sorrow and really ask, is it a worldly sort of sorrow or is it a godly sort of sorrow? Because a worldly sorrow causes us to look around and really ask the question, um, who can I blame? Like, is there something else here? Are there some circumstances in my life that I can point to and place blame upon or or at least look to someone else and say, hey, I'm not the only one to blame in this situation. I had somebody say one time, beware of people that say, I'm sorry, but, all right, that leads any sentence with that. And so worldly sorrow, what it does is it causes us to look around and make excuses. Godly sorrow is different. And godly sorrow causes us to look up And to look at life and even our actions through the lens of the cross and the price paid for our sin and realize not only has my sin hurt others, but it has also grieved the Lord. And so it causes us to take full responsibility, but it also helps us to realize that we need God too, that we want to make things right with Him, and that we are in need of His grace as well. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And so I think this woman is clearly demonstrating godly sorrow for us. She's pouring out her tears. She makes a a sacrifice at the feet of Jesus, and then the whole room starts to buzz. Verse 39, it says, When the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, but sort of out loud, because Luke writes it down, If this man were a prophet, who would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a, a sinner? And so Simon notices what she's doing. He rebukes her. And it's not because she's come to the meal, but again, because she refused to stay on the sidelines. He's also rebuking Jesus at the same time, as he believed that any respected rabbi would have kicked this woman to the side of the room at this given moment. And again, Pharisees avoided uh, uh, interaction with people like these at all costs. They avoided contact with anyone like her because they would say she's unclean. But again, there's just no desire to help this woman experience freedom and forgiveness. And so Jesus is her only hope. Look at Jesus' response to the Pharisee, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you, which is just cue for, hey, dude, you know what? You're on the ropes here. I got something for you. I've got a message just for you. And look at his response. He says, tell me, teacher. And again, I think Simon has already made up his mind about Jesus. Uh, I think Simon felt morally superior to Jesus. He didn't really have any interest in what Jesus had to say. And so I think his willingness is reluctant at best. Verse 41, Jesus starts into this parable for everyone to hear. And that was a common teaching device for rabbis in this day. But Luke 7, verse 41, it says, Jesus started, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, one denarii was equal to one day, to a, to a day's wage, one denarii per day for a common laborer. And so if you do the math here, this is 500 days worth of wages up against 50 days worth of wages. Verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had, been, had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Verse 44, Then he turned toward the woman 
and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put my oil on my head, but she, was poured, she has poured perfume on my feet. See, Simon had committed several uh, social errors, customary errors here with Jesus. It was, it was common when a guest like this came to greet them with a, a customary kiss. They would anoint that person's head with oil, and then he would have a servant at least, all right, come in and wash the feet of the guest. But Simon has done none of that. For Jesus, he hasn't offered any of these things. And so I sort of kind of feel like that with Simon, he's okay to be with Jesus, all right, but he's not going to make a big deal out of who he is. But for the woman, on the other hand, it wasn't enough to just be with Jesus. She can't contain herself. She had to do something to worship him. In fact, I was just thinking about this this past week. I think here's a good question for us. Like, why is it or how is it that she became so unraveled in her emotions in this moment? And I just wonder if it had something to do with the inability of Simon to see Jesus for who he really was. Like she was just thinking to herself, like, how is it that you can't see him for who he is and his compassion and his kindness and his love, and so for this woman, her life had changed so much that she had to do something to, to worship Jesus. And so she did something uh, to demonstrate her love for him. She did something to demonstrate her appreciation uh, and, and to serve him. And so she shed tears, and she anointed his feet, uh, and she gave this expensive perfume because maybe for her, she just couldn't understand why Simon was so on guard that even he wouldn't allow his servant to take care of the feet of Jesus upon arrival. Again, why, could he, why, why is it that he and others weren't able to see Jesus for who he really is? And so she extends these things as an act of worship, and Jesus received her worship. Again, it's a perfect collision of both sin and grace. And look at Jesus' response to her, verse 47. He said, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And so again, imagine this woman who knows her life and her past is nothing but shady. But man, it makes the forgiveness even greater for her. And let me just draw one important distinction here. I mean, this woman's actions did nothing to warrant her forgiveness. Okay, let's not miss that. I mean, it's the grace of God. Remember, it's God's grace through faith that saves, not acts of love, not acts of, of generosity here. But just please take note, though, how this woman's act demonstrated all right, her true faith. And Jesus was honored by it, and he was honored enough to tell her in no uncertain terms before the religious leader here that your sins are forgiven. And then verse 49, the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. And for the other guests in the room, what they didn't realize is that this man that they only knew in the flesh would in a matter of days uh, go to the cross. This would be the one who would willingly lay down his life like, 
Like you need to know that today. Like he gave his life for you. Like Jesus Christ, he willingly gave up his life on the cross for, for your sin and for my sin, and for the sins of this woman, and for the sins of Simon the Pharisee, for anyone here today, for anyone that's yet to come. Jesus willingly gave up his life, all right, so that we might experience his love, that we might experience his grace, that we might experience his forgiveness in our lives for our personal sins, and it's his free gift, and it's available. It's available to you and me today. Now, what does this mean for us? Four things in your notes Uh, If you're taking notes today before we wrap up here today and maybe some things for you to think about even this week and even ask yourself, how do these apply to my own life? Uh, Quickly, the first one is this, that we all need forgiveness. Uh, Every single one of us. This woman needed forgiveness. Her sins were great, but do you know what? Simon needed forgiveness uh, too. And man, that's just a reminder for us that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the life you've lived. It doesn't matter your reputation, where you find yourself today, what's even happened this past week. Uh, It doesn't matter how great uh, our culture might view the way you live your life today or maybe how they've shamed you for how you've lived. Uh, Because of sin, we all need, every single one of us here today is in need of God's forgiveness. Let me kind of illustrate how this works uh, for you. This is a picture of the Manhattan skyline. And uh, I took this picture from the Staten Island Ferry this summer as we were coming back uh, into Manhattan. And here's the way that I think this works today for most of us. Uh, Christians, we're guilty of this, but when it comes to sin, uh, it's kind of like this Manhattan skyline, that, that we look at different people's actions, uh, moves, mistakes, sins, and if, uh, if each building represented different things that people have done, I mean, think about how often we'll look at such a great skyscraper, or we'll look at the act of one particular person, and we'll think to ourselves, wow, like that's a doozy, right? I mean, like that's a different category. And so as Christians especially, we're great at looking at one sin and kind of putting in its own category. And think about how often we might look and with some of the other smaller buildings in mind, think, well, these are some of my so-called sins or whatever, but like they're really not that big of a deal compared to what someone else has done. Can I show you what God, ultimately God, thinks of our sin and all the different sin in this world, he's got a different perspective. And from his vantage point, it's, it's all the same. It's all sin. The Apostle Paul says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And certainly, and there is no doubt in my mind, there are certain choices that we make that have different consequences in the world's eyes, and, and, and appropriately so. And, and God disciplines us to different degrees based on actions and things that we find ourselves caught up in. But at the foot of the cross, it's all equal. All sin is sin in the eyes of God. And I think, and the Lord put this on my heart this morning, I I think we need to be careful as followers of Christ that we don't fall into the trap of becoming like Simon. Because you know what, if we're going to be all about helping people find their way back to God, there is a world that we have been called to, that we're going to find ourselves in. We're going to meet a whole bunch of different people with lots of different stories. And you know what? Christ died for every single one of them. And he loves them deeply. And every person that doesn't know Christ is like a lost sheep that he is waiting to to be gathered back into the flock. Let's be careful that we don't become like Simon in our ways and even prevent people from coming 
to the feet of Jesus Christ. And so we've all sinned. As the Apostle Paul says, we've all fallen short apart, apart from Christ. No one is righteous. There is no amount of good any one person can do on their own to make things right with God. And so we all sin. The second thing is that it's God who forgives sins. It is God who forgives sins. You know, when we sin, we sin against God and we, we owe him. And, and I know that for some of you that might sound so foreign and so controversial to you to think that we owe something of God. There is a debt that must be satisfied because of sin. Think again uh, to the parable that Jesus shared in this room with Simon and this woman. In the parable, the lender forgave the debt, the large debt and the small one at the same time. Guess what? Someone had to absorb the debt. All right, someone has to take responsibility and assume the debt. It's kind of like this. Think about all of the devastating news that surrounds the Puerto Rico right now. And it's so sad to see, you know, the difficulty in recovery there, so much de- devastation. Add to it an already critical financial situation uh, for Puerto Rico before the storm. You can only see that they've got many difficult days ahead of them. One of the solutions that has been presented here and in other search situations like it is that uh, to cancel the debt that Puerto Rico owns. And I don't want to try and figure out with you whether that's right or wrong or not, but I want you to understand uh, of how difficult that it's really just not that simple because the debt is owed to somebody. All right, when there's a debt, someone has to absorb the debt. And so if the debt is canceled, someone is willingly, is willingly saying, I will absorb it. Someone has to pay for it. And in the same way, someone had to pay our debt. Someone had to pay the debt for my sin, and grace means that Jesus was willing to do that for us on the cross. He absorbed the debt. He took sin upon himself, and he covered the price when he gave his life on the cross for us. And that's what the Apostle Paul was describing in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said this of Jesus, that God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the third thing. Faith is the way to forgiveness. And so God offers his forgiveness. He offers his salvation. You can't earn it. Again, it's a free gift. All we can do is receive it. We must believe him. We must believe his word that is good and that it is true. And so we have to receive that gift in faith from him. And for some of you today, for some of you, that just means that you need to ask yourself, what's preventing me from trusting Christ? What's preventing me from receiving his free gift so that you can live for him, that you can live for him confidently and with greater purpose, forgiven in this world? Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Who's that son? It's Jesus Christ who came and gave his life and that anyone who believes in him that you will not perish and have everlasting life. It's why John the disciple, who spent a lot of time with Jesus, was able to say in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, it doesn't matter what you've done and it doesn't matter what others say about you or have said about you. His grace is good enough for you. It's good enough for me. And for the rest of you here today, for those of you that have trusted Christ with your life, I hope you recognize the power of this truth and what it means for you too. God's grace. Because the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all right, your life changed forever. I mean, as we like to talk about it, we'll talk about this forever. I mean, you belong to him now. I mean, if you've trusted the Lord with your life, you are a, a forgiven child of God in this world. Uh, to, and no one's going to take away your forgiveness, all right, based on any one act. And does that mean we won't ever sin again? 
fortunately not. You know, this side of heaven, we will always struggle with sin. But thankfully, Christ dealt with our sins, the penalty of our sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. Now, that's not permission to go about and just live a careless life and to go on sinning and to choose whatever we want for ourselves. All right, again, it's not permission to live selfishly, but our goal, our aim should be to live for Christ, to make it our goal to live for him. And that's why we need to be in relationship with God. All right, and honestly, that's why this church is so important and why I want this church to be so important for you and in your walk with the Lord, you know? All right, you, you matter here, all right? And we need to walk side by side with one another, all right, and hold each other accountable and encourage one another in this life, no matter what we face, no matter what it is that you go through. Don't do life in isolation, all right? Don't spend your life away from here, caught up in so many other things. Make it your goal and make it your aim to be a part of this church so that together we can all keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Here's what his forgiveness gives way to. Last thing, number four, we're given a new life. Notice that Jesus said to this woman, go in peace. It was his way of basically saying, you know what, you're not gonna carry this burden anymore. It's not gonna define you. And I love the picture. I love the picture of how this woman who was formerly known as a sinner, as a prostitute, brings this entire expensive jar of perfume and she just pours it out on Jesus' feet as a way of saying, because I'm a child of God, a new creation in Jesus. I'm not going to need this anymore. Some of you, you, you need to make a move, all right, in your life to, de- to demonstrate what Christ has done for you. And if you're a Christian, you know, as a way of saying, you know what, I've died to my old self and I'm a new creation today. If you've never been baptized before, that's a great next step for you uh, in your walk with the Lord. And maybe, maybe for some of you, maybe you need to have a funeral of sorts that just says, you know what, I, I am leaving my old past behind. I am a new person. I'm not gonna carry this guilt anymore Because again, if you've trusted Christ, you have a new life and you got a new focus and a new mission because you're a citizen of heaven. And you and I, we all have the responsibility of leading others to the feet of Jesus, all right, as we trust him. So here's the thing. And again, this is fascinating to me as we close. Uh, We don't know what happened to this woman, all right, after this account in Luke 7. But I think that it's really telling that right after Luke's account here in Luke 7, Luke 8 starts with this. Check it out with me for just a second. Starting in verse 1, Luke records, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12, the 12 disciples, all right, that spent the most time with him were with him and also, get this, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Herod's household. Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Again, we don't know what came to be with this woman, all right, at the feet of Jesus in Simon's home, but I don't think it's a coincidence that right after this encounter with this woman, Luke seems to indicate that it's a natural progression from being forgiven to becoming a worshiper to being a supporter in the ministry of Jesus. And it's almost as if he's saying, once you realize how great the price of grace really is, you can't help but want to give it back. You can't help but want to pay it back. Now, hear this loud and clear. I'm not saying that we can ever repay God for the gift of grace. Absolutely not. However, and what we see over and over again in Scripture is that when you truly understand that you're forgiven and what it means to call yourself a child of God, then you can't help but become a part of the ministry. 
You can't help but being a part of the movement of the work. And so they travel with Jesus and they serve with him and they give sacrificially of their resources and financially out of their own means. And why? Not because they're obligated, but because when you realize the radical gift of grace received, you can't help but want others to be able to experience that the same. And honestly, I can't think of a better investment of time and money than in telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ and to tell our story and to tell your story. I mean, again, I understand there are lots of things in this world that we can give our lives to, but I believe that there is nothing. There is nothing as as important as helping people find their way back to God, and that's why I'm here, and that's what our church is about, and that's what I hope that you'll commit to with your life the same. And last thing, if you go back to the beginning, let's pretend you get a check in the mail this week from a great aunt for $1,000. That's fun, right? Who wouldn't be excited about that? I bet you'd think about, how am I going to use what I've been given? How much more important then to give careful consideration to what you do with your one forgiven life here on this earth? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, as not only a model and example, but as your gift of grace. Grace for us, grace for the world, grace for every person here today. And Father, I pray that you would just invite us in and really invite us under what it means to live in a life of grace and to understand the power of forgiveness for our own lives and the power of forgiveness for others. We don't want to be like Simon, Lord. We know you love Simon. We want to be like Jesus. And we want to extend that love and that grace to others. We want to be able to and willing to forgive as Jesus is forgiven. But I also realize that for some here today, maybe it's just simply about encountering that grace for the first time or that grace for the first time in a long time. Because maybe some have lost their way here today. If that's you, I, I want you to know that you can go to the feet of Jesus, maybe in your own mind even this morning, that he will welcome you, that he loves you, that he is the only one capable of forgiving your sins. And that doesn't mean there's maybe not a lot of work to do and there's a, lot of, a number of relationships that need to be repaired. He can help you in that. He's a good God. He's a good father. And he loves to walk with us. But I want to invite you to consider what it would mean to give it all to him today, to pour it all out on his feet, and maybe even pray, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need your grace today. Will you forgive me? Will you come into my life? And we thank you, God, that it is by grace that we're saved through faith, and it's your gift to us, to all of us, and maybe someone here today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.